Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there. That's my new Obi-Wan Kenobi impersonation. I'm going to open all my podcasts like that. Hello there. So welcome back, Space Monkeys. It's been a while since I have recorded. I apologize for that. Took off a few weeks ago for Team EF Coaching Pro Tour Camp, World Tour Team Camp, Pro Camp in Girona, Spain. That was December 1st through the 8th, and it is already December 22nd. But sometimes life gets really busy and things happen. Stayed in Spain for another week, did some things there. Then I got sick, got a head cold, had to fly home on the airplane with a head cold, which meant I was literally that guy on the plane because I was blowing my nose about every 120 seconds for the entire flight from Barcelona to Newark. And then again, from Newark to Denver. Pretty miserable. I did wear a mask, but I had to take it off 700 times to blow my nose. So what can you do? Sorry, everyone on the plane. I did my best to minimize my impact on your voyage. Then we got home and found an inch of water in our basement. So then that was a lot of fun. That pretty much consumed the two days following our arrival, dealing with all the things, the plumbing. And now I'm just coming out of the cave, out of the work hole, a deep, dark work hole. So I'm back behind the mic though, and that feels good. That's some context for you all. I hope that as we go into the holiday season here of 2022, that you are doing well wherever you are in the world. Also at the moment now to add a few additional complications, Boulder is currently in some sort of Hoth-like deep freeze. It was a high of negative eight degrees Fahrenheit today, which is totally insane. Uh, we do have a real winter in Boulder for those of you who don't live here or have never been here, but usually not like that. This is, this is pretty nuts. It's not typically this cold. They were talking about wind chill of minus 50. That's five zero in Denver today, which would be an all time record if it happened. I'm not sure if it did. It wasn't windy at my house, but, uh, could have definitely been windy in Boulder or in uh, Denver, which is about 40 K east of us. Southeast. So moving on to the topic of today's podcast, given all my travels to Spain and back, and I have some additional travel upcoming in the next few weeks as well, I thought it would be useful for me to unpack some of my philosophies and ideas around how to handle time zone adaptation, otherwise known as jet lag techniques. And this is something that I had many, many opportunities to refine over my career because I did a lot of transcontinental flights, raced on five continents, uh, New Zealand, raced in Australia, raced in South Africa, in Cape Town, raced a bunch in Europe, raced in South America. 
So I'm pretty sure that's five. Never raced in the Arctic or Antarctica. So then there's that. But I did gather a lot of intel on how to screw it up and how to dial it in as far as traveling. And I would say that I had some pretty good success. Over time, I had a good formula going. And the height of that might have been when I flew to Manchester, England on some given day in around, I think this was 2007, if memory serves right. Might have been 2008. And we flew over for what was back then the Revolution Track Series, which was a really big deal at the time. I don't think those still exist. But it was sort of a, a one, it was like a six-day race, but only one night long. And they would bring in all the stars. And I flew over, pardon me while I go down memory lane here. I flew over some Thursday, I think, landed Friday morning at 9 a.m., got on my bike, rode three hours, really, really easy. Went to the hotel, ate lunch, went to the track, raced that night. And there was all kinds of superstars in that race. If I remember right, Cav was in the points race. And there were several other really good riders in the race whose names are escaping me at the moment. But in any case, I managed to, to win the race. So that was pretty cool. Felt pretty pretty happy about that accomplishment, given the fact that I'd flown in that morning. That was that was a good successful event. So, in any case, with that little bit of expertise uh, or that little bit of history behind the show, let's dive into some jet lag techniques. I'm going to break these down into six foundational principles. We'll go through each of those, and then I'll do some specifics beyond that. So, time zone adaptation techniques. The first category would be sleep. And generally speaking, I would say don't overthink it. A lot of people have these crazy cockamamie ideas about optimizing their sleep schedule before they travel to an event. And they do these time zone calculations and they start going to bed earlier or later to try to sync up their biorhythms. And I just think this over complexifies things. This is my take on it. Just go to bed at your normal time and try to arm up on sleep before you travel. I know for me, typically the time around travel is just the same as the time around uh, one of the biggest races of your season or your life. You can't really guarantee that you're going to get much sleep the night before you do a world championship or an Olympic points race, uh, just to use examples in my own history. So you really need to sleep as much as possible in the previous 7, 10, 12, 14 days before that because nerves can take over. Now, I'm a good sleeper and before pretty much every Worlds I had, I would say on at most of them, I had very, very good sleep. Uh, if I recall correctly, I slept nearly 12 hours the night before the Olympic points race. That tells you something. But I would say avoid trying to manipulate time zones too much before you head to your new destination. And my rule about it is my overarching rule or concept is just get on local time as soon as you can when you're there. So to that point, a lot of times I have discussions with people and they'll look at their watch at four in the afternoon at their new destination, their new time zone in Europe or wherever they are. And they'll say, well, back home, it's actually 2.30 a.m. And I never do that. Once I'm on the ground in my new spot, that's it. I'm there. I'm not looking at my watch. I reset all my clocks, reset my computer clock on my laptop. That is your phone should obviously sync automatically, but any other clocks that are watches that don't sync through GPS or don't automatically pick up the new time zone, I just reset them to the new time zone and that's it. I don't think about it at all. I'm not concerned about what time it is back home because it's irrelevant. I'm in a new place and that's the time zone that matters. And I think part of that attitude is what has enabled me to adopt a new time zone very quickly just let it go. So some people will also do the same thing. They'll try to engineer some crazy scenario where they're going to sleep eight hours on a flight. And I don't think this is realistic. Uh, I mean, even if you're in business class on a long flight, the sleep you get on an airplane is mostly garbage. It's anything you get that's actual sleep is a gift. And I'll get into sleep medications in a moment, but 
I don't think we should depend on sleep on a plane, nor do I think it's constructive for people to be frustrated if they don't sleep on a plane. I think you should expect to not sleep on a plane. It's a freaking airplane. You're being bombarded with EMFs and solar radiation and beeps and bloops and stewardesses and people snoring and farting and all the things, right? And it's just not realistic. It's not a dark place. It's not a quiet place. The temperature's off. The chairs are uncomfortable. Even the the flatbeds are still not quite right. But most people don't fly business most of the time. We're in coach. And if you fly United, then you're literally a human sardine. You're a meat popsicle. Uh, so getting good sleep on those things is very challenging. And I'll say that I love all people and I'm generally a nice guy. But if I ever meet the engineer who designed the old United airplane seats, I'm going to have to try really hard not to take his life because those seats are hell on earth. They're absolutely hideous. Uh, I don't know what people were thinking, but they were so off base, so completely wrong. So far from designing something that is ergonomically correct, I can't even put words to it. Okay, airplane seat rant over. So I think we have to take the perspective that any rest we get on the plane is is just a bonus. It's like icing on the cake. We don't expect it. We're going to sleep when we get to where we're going. And we're going to do that in a very organized and structured way. This is critical. So I'm going to unpack this sleeping strategy on the ground later. But to synopsize, before you get on the flight, don't overdo it. Just go to bed at your normal times, get up at your normal times, try to get a little extra sleep before your travel if possible. That's a great strategy. On the flight, expect to not get any sleep. That doesn't mean you can't try to sleep. I'm not saying don't try to sleep. If you sleep, great. I have found that when I put in headphones and use some tracks, in particular some uh, binaural beats, I can really pass out on a plane, but it usually is pretty brief. It's more like a deep power nap of about 30 minutes. And when I wake up, I'm usually quite refreshed. If I need one of those, I'll take it. But if I don't need one, I will usually work the entire flight. I'll just log in and hammer email. It's a good chance for me to try to get to inbox zero, which rarely happens. But it's a goal. If I can just get to zero, I'll be happy, I swear. Colby Pierce, professional email answerer. Hopefully that'll be on my gravestone. So so that's my, my thoughts on sleep regarding before the flight and after the flight. I'll unpack the post-flight sleep later because that part's particularly important. The second step is hydration. And this one is really tricky. I think part of it is simply understanding how hard it is to stay hydrated when you're traveling and why people get dehydrated. Okay, there's the obvious stuff. You're on an airplane and that's usually a very arid environment. You're trapped in a seat. You've got limited access to fluids, but also let's be realistic. Access to a bathroom during the entire experience of travel just sucks. Like if you have to pee like crazy and you're stuck in the security line or stuck on a train at some airport going from one terminal to another or on the plane and the seatbelt sign is illuminated and the stewardess is giving you the stank eye when you try to get up, then you're miserable. You can be unbelievably miserable when you're trapped. And in travel, there are many opportunities to be trapped where you really, really have to use a bathroom and you can't. And I think everyone figures this out over time. And so we all don't drink enough because it's a defense mechanism. Um, I've had multiple experiences where I almost pee my pants. Uh, a couple times this has happened to me. In particular, one time I got on the ground in China and I, for some reason, thought the transfer from the airport to the hotel was going to be 20 minutes and it was like two and a half hours and I drank a huge bottle of water and I almost did not make it to the hotel parking lot. It was pretty bad. So uh, it was to the point where I was in pain. So we want to avoid that, but we also need to be hydrated and we need to not get off the plane a dried up prune. So how do we do that? Well, I think the the operating procedure that I have learned to use is to take strategic amounts of water at the right time. So I'll drink some in the morning before I begin the journey to the airport in the bus or shuttle or whatever. And then I'll drink a little more before I go through security. And then I drink some when I get on the plane. 
usually in the first part. And there's no hard rule on this. You just have to feel it, right? I'm not going to tell you the number of ounces of water you should drink. But I will say that what you don't want to do is hit the ground and then get to your hotel or wherever you're going and then hammer a bunch of water. If, well, it depends on your arrival schedule. If you're there in the morning or in the middle of the day, then drinking a fair amount of water when you hit the ground is probably a pretty good strategy because you are probably pretty dehydrated from the experience of travel. But if you get there in the evening and you drink a bunch of water, all you're going to do is cause yourself problems because then you're going to have to pee all night. And it is critical, absolutely crucial that you protect, fiercely defend the boundaries around your first night of sleep. This is really, really important. Your first night of sleep when you're in your new location needs to be as flawless as possible. So you got to be quite careful if you arrive in the evening. You want to drink some water, but you really got to intuit how much you can get away with without causing yourself problems in the middle of the night. Because if you have to get up and pee at two in the morning and then your body is still adjusting to time zones, you may never fall asleep again. And this can set up a really bad pattern. It's, you know, one of the ways to think about this is simply adjusting your circadian rhythms to local time as quickly as possible. And this requires a redirection of momentum. In a lot of ways, human bodies are like trains on a track. And once they get going on a particular train track, the train just sort of keeps rolling. It's got a lot of momentum. It's hard. You have to make a very conscious effort with a lot of energy to get it to stop moving the train metaphorically that is and this bodies work this way in a lot of senses and so sometimes we have to intentionally derail the train or we'll say divert it to a better track speaking of hydration it's water time the next aspect uh, that i want to talk about is food and my philosophies on this have changed over the years and now i've arrived with what i think is the ideal solution and it's pretty simple I don't eat when I travel, ever. There's several reasons for this. Uh, one has to do with Zeitgebers. Zeitgebers. I'll define that in a moment. But the second has to do with the fact that all airplane and airport food is shit. I'm going to say that again. It's complete shit. It doesn't belong in anyone's body. Uh, it's garbage food. It runs at about 44% of optimal chi food energy at best. So my perspective is after having several bad experiences with airline food and airport food is in most instances, I just chose not to eat. It's one of those opportunities for me to just practice fasting and go without. It keeps your life so much simpler. Most of the time people are eating on planes because they're uncomfortable and they're bored. So they want to satiate themselves with something that occupies their pleasure centers. And I understand this. Uh, it's quite tempting to want to bring a huge bar of chocolate or a giant pile of whatever on the plane and eat it. And when you're cruising through the all the shops and all the restaurants at the airport, they've got all the things loaded up with the MSG and the salt and all the substandard ingredients that are super processed. And you know what? In that moment, they'll probably all really taste good because they're loaded with sugar and MSG and salt. So, duh. Uh, a chemical literally targeted, designed, and target that targets the pleasure centers and taste receptors of the human body. That's what it was made to do. So it's going to taste good, and it's also not good for you. It's a bad trade-off. So I just don't eat on airplanes. I could bring my own food, and if I were still racing really hard, I might do this from time to time because we don't want to be depleted to the point where we are totally smoked the next day when we try to go training or if you're showing up for a race. So when I flew to Manchester and did the points race, for sure I ate on the plane. Or maybe I brought food, I don't recall. I, there was a period when I started bringing my own food on the plane, and that's a better solution if you can get away with it. That is, you prepare food in advance. Make yourself an egg and whatever burrito, potato burrito, sweet potato burrito, and bring it on the plane. You just have to plan ahead. It's one more thing to do while you're packing your bike and packing your clothes and thinking about all your schedule and all your stuff and where your passport is. So some people, it would be too much for them to handle cooking in addition to all the things. But that's a solution. If you are going to fast on the plane um, and you've never fasted before, get ready to get really, really quite hungry. 
my suggestion would be if you're going to try it is bring a few snacks, some little bars that are healthy or something that is portable and healthy. And if you absolutely start losing it, just eat some food. Don't treat yourself like you are, you're a failure, especially if you've never fasted for long periods before. Generally speaking, depending on your experience and the, the type of person you are, people will start to get quite hungry when other food is being served. So if you're on a flight and they start serving everyone else's food, it's going to be, that's the moment of real test. Your body will, of real challenge, I'll say, your body will begin to, of course, smell the food and, and that will turn on some sensations of hunger and anticipation in your own system. Um, this doesn't really bother me because I know that the food served on the airline is such low quality that I don't want to eat it anyway. It really doesn't bother me at all, but I can see how some people would be challenged by this. So have be armed and ready. If you decide to fast, and you've never fasted on a flight before. That's my recommendation. Just bring a few healthy bars. That's a good way to do it. Um, something that's not super high glycemic. I'm not talking about a gel or a honey stinger waffle. You don't need a sugar crash. You need something more like figs and almonds or something like that. That would be a better move most likely. But if you decide to fast, be ready for waves of hunger and understand that when you're in a pretty intense wave of hunger and it really sucks, that it doesn't just get worse from there. That's not how fasting works. Your body will complain and tell you it's hungry. And then when you don't feed it, eventually it gives up for a while. And then you feel really good and your energy is clear. Uh, that is, you get very productive and awake and your mind becomes clear. And it's quite easy to be quite productive or artistically creative. If you want to draw or sing a song to yourself, just don't disturb your neighbors or do some work or read a book or watch an entertaining movie. Uh, things can go quite well for a period of time. And then the hunger will come back in another wave. That's how it works. So if you've never fasted before, just expect that that's what happens. There can be this moment of panic when you're really hungry and you're thinking, what's going to happen in 30 minutes? You know, I'm this hungry now. I'm about to gnaw off my own arm. And going through that process, if you've never fasted, I'm getting a little off topic here because I'm talking about fasting, but if you've never fasted, having that experience is quite powerful uh, from my perspective because it can teach you how you can do okay and live without food. If you've never gone more than 12 hours in your life without eating a meal, other than perhaps when you were really sick, um, it, I would invite you to consider the concept of fasting now and again, just to explore that boundary and see how your body responds. You can learn a lot about yourself when you have these experiences. They're powerful. And as it turns out to be a human being on this planet, you don't need to eat at a minimum of every 12 hours to survive. You can go quite a ways without food. On the ground, then we get to use our Zeitgeber. A Zeitgeber, you're wondering what this is, I will tell you. The strict definition, or at least the one found on the infinitely wise Wikipedia, is any external or environmental cue that entrains or synchronizes an organism's biological rhythms, usually naturally occurring and serving to entrain the Earth's 24-hour light, dark, and 12-month cycles. So it's any external or environmental cue. So when we use food as a Zeitgeber, what we're doing is retraining your circadian clock to local time. So how do we do that? It's pretty simple. If you fly to Europe from the US and you land in the morning, when you get off the plane, you have breakfast. Now, this might seem trite or obvious, but I don't think it is because sometimes people try to still eat as though they're in their local time zone because they think that that's what they want. And maybe it is what they want, but I'm telling you what you want may not be the best thing for you in this case you want to eat on local time. And it also might seem trite or obvious because you may not be able to get breakfast during dinner time in Europe. In fact, almost certainly you can't. Europe is actually a country that serves meals at certain times, whereas in the US you can go to 24-hour house of pancakes or whatever and get breakfast at any old time you want, which is in fact ridiculous. But we want to respect the not only the content of the meal, but also the timing of the meal. That is to say, eat dinner at dinner time. 
eat breakfast at breakfast time, have lunch at lunchtime, and get on local meal time as quickly as you can. So you're adopting the rhythm of the local culture as quickly as possible. This helps integrate you. Um, in order to do this, you need to not do things like take naps through dinner. And this goes into the sleeping when you're on the ground philosophy, which I will get to later or unpack further later, as I mentioned. But we want to use Zeitgebers to help us adapt to local culture and local time as quickly as possible. Another way to use a Zeitgeber is to touch the earth with your bare flesh. The easiest way to do this is to take off your shoes and walk through the grass. You can also walk on concrete or sidewalk. The only rules are don't burn, puncture, or freeze your feet and watch out for dog bombs. But otherwise, anything goes and touching the earth can help ground you literally and figuratively to your new location. I recommend this. Another Zeitgeber we can use is simply sunlight exposure. So when you are on the ground in your new location, if the sun is out, try to spend some time in it. And if you're going for a ride, which I recommend, uh, even if you flew in that morning, go ride your bike. Try to do at least part of the ride with no eyewear on. Why? Because we want the full intensity of the sun to hit your eyeballs. We don't need dark lenses right now. We need full sun exposure. And this obviously, this recommendation obviously has to be taken with respect to eyeball safety. If you are flying somewhere for a mountain bike race and you're going mountain biking, then wear protective eyewear. Don't sacrifice your eyeball health because you were trying to adapt to the local time zone. However, if it's possible to ride with at least, for at least part of the ride with no eyewear on, this is what I would recommend. Also, if you go for a walk outside, again, no eyewear, unless you're going to injure your eyes, unless it's so bright that you might get uh, sunburn retina. That's not the goal. This would apply in places with lots of uh, light surfaces. Um, or reflective surfaces. Like if you went to somewhere with a lot of snow and it was a very sunny day, your eyes can get burned. Your, eye, your retinas can get sunburned pretty quickly. So you want to be cautious of that, but you want to try and get a few minutes in there for sure. Cause that'll help your clock readjust very quickly. If it's 3am and your body is on Colorado time and you're in Europe and it's 9am, I don't know if those numbers are correct. I'm just making them up and you're in a sunny ski area and you even keep your, or a sunny location and you keep your eyewear off for a few minutes, that'll reset the system real fast. It'll help, we'll say. Breathing would be another foundational principle and we would pay attention to this during our travel experience. And I mention this because it's quite easy for us to go into, we'll say a pretty sympathetic state while we're packing because there are a lot of details to remember, right? It's like, don't forget my arm warmers. Don't forget my cycling shoes. Don't forget my passport. What time is it? And we're constantly checking the clock because we're worried about getting the ride to the bus to make it to the airport or catching the train to the airport or getting dropped off at the right time and considering traffic and all the bits. Trust, travel is just a good way to add a lot of stress to our lives. So I try to offload that stress as much as possible Sometimes I'll make a packing list in advance, especially if there are things that I think are particularly important for this trip or unusual things that I know I need to not forget. And the way that I've found to relieve stress is to take the things out of my brain and put them into the physical universe. So I use a lot of post-its and random pieces of paper, and I put them in obvious places where I can't miss them. And this helps me relax a little bit because I'm not ruminating over remembering these critical bits. I'm just focused on whatever I have to do at the moment. And then I see the piece of paper and it reminds me. And that's my way of offloading the stress of trying to remember these specifics into the physical universe and out of my internal universe. And what this does is frees up RAM, so to speak. It allows my brain to focus on more of what I'm doing and be less distracted and also less the, the hard drive is running at uh, lower RPMs, I suppose, is the, maybe the way to say it. I don't know if these are really dated, dated terminologies I'm using. I think all hard drives are solid state now, so I don't know what all that stuff means. I'm not up to date on the latest computer technology, but in any case, 
it's easy to go into a sympathetic state and start breathing through your mouth and have an increased respiration rate. So throughout various moments of my travel, I will close my eyes and simply focus inwards and go through a little series of relaxation cues and focus on slowing down my breath. So this is specifically how I do this. You can use these cues anytime you want, but during travel, I find them quite effective. For me, my pattern is when I get stressed about travel, I tend to click my jaw a lot for some reason. I click my teeth against each other, uh, usually in time with music that's playing in my head. I've got a somewhat musical brain. There's pretty much always music playing in my brain. At the moment, nothing because I'm recording, but frequently I've got it playing in the background like a like a soundtrack of my life. And the German expression for that is earworm, I believe, especially when you get a jingle in your head, which I don't really get too often. I've got pretty good control over my own internal music player. But sometimes the music sort of starts to drive me a bit and it will show up as tension in my jaw. So when I'm clicking my teeth, first of all, it's really bad for my teeth, but secondarily, my masseter muscles and my temporalis get really, really sore. They just get fatigued and blown out. So I'll kind of do a little jaw massage and side of my head massage above my ears and try to relax those muscles a bit. And I'll, I'll kind of do some jaw work where I'm opening and closing and trying to get things to relax. And then I'll just go inwards and, and try to release tension and focus on breath. And the simple way I do that is to count to eight on every inhale and eight on every exhale. And if I can do that for a few minutes straight, then things tend to unwind. So if I'm on a bus or a train to the airport and it's been a big rush to make the train, then I know that for the moment I can relax because I've got however long to get to the airport. I'll close my eyes first thing and do a little meditation and focus on the breath and focus on relaxing. Then again, when the plane takes off, usually pretty much the first thing I do when I get to my seat is assuming that everyone who's on the inside of me is already sat, I will get myself settled and get my things together, clean up my seat a little bit. Usually I bring some thieves wipes, if you're familiar with those, and wipe things down a little bit. They smell like cinnamon. That usually makes people happy or comment. Then I close my eyes and put in my headphones, do a little binaural beats, and I'll just go into relaxation mode and do a meditation. This really helps me relax and release the tension and energy that has built up to that point in the journey, right? I mean, once the plane, once you're on the plane and you're in the seat, what's done is done and you brought what you brought and you can deal with the next chapter when you hit the ground in your new location. So that's a good chance to reset and forget what's already happened or try to let it go. But if you go immediately into two cups of coffee on the plane or a bunch of wine or hard liquor, and then you're watching gone in 60 seconds, 12, um, how I destroyed my new Porsche collection or whatever, some action movie where people are getting blown up all over the place, then you're just sort of feeding the beast as it were. Uh, so I really guard my visual and auditory world when I'm on the flight because travel is a lot of stimulus. There are a lot of people around and you know, you may not think that consciously being the presence of other humans impacts you, but it impacts all of us. Uh, being in crowded places and watching other people being in their, in their energy can have a pretty significant impact on your own state of being. So that's why I sort of guard my own energy a bit while I'm on the flight and become going to defense mode almost to a, to a degree not in a way that's going to cause any conflict or friction, we'll say. That's not how I mean it. It's more uh, putting up the, putting the shields up a little bit. So that covers breathing and also point five, which is meditation. Uh, and then the next part of the foundational principles would be movement, right? So on longer flights, I will definitely get up and use the restroom. And I always take a few minutes to stretch or really do some active movements, not so much stretching, but active movements that just wake up the muscles and get my body to move a little bit. 
either on the way to or from the bathroom while you're waiting for the bathroom. And I'll just find the little area by the door and do some bodyweight squats and some lunges and I'll do some rotations and some twists and I'll try and open up my shoulders and do some head rolls uh, and some figure four stretches, but I'm not laying on the ground. I'm just standing on one foot and putting the other ankle on my knee and doing sort of like a reverse lunge or a, a sit down kind of motion to stretch the other glute. And I'll just do these movements for maybe five minutes at the most. Try to open up the spine a little bit, uh, some forward bends, that kind of stuff. I just move, got to move the body. And I'll do that three or four times during a long flight if I need to. Also before the flight, I don't, I tend to not sit in the gate area. I tend to stand or I'll do a deep squat or occasionally if there's enough room and I've got some wall space, I'll put my legs up against the wall. These are just ways I'm thinking to try to avoid the number of minutes of sitting because travel is dominated by sitting. I mean, you sit on the bus in the car or on the train to get to the airport. Then you walk to the gate and then you sit at the gate and then you get on the plane and you sit on the plane and then you get off the plane and usually you stand at baggage claim and then you get your bags and then you sit in the taxi or airplane or uh, train or bus or car to get to your destination. So by the time you add up all the number of minutes of sitting in a day of travel, it's enormous. And well, we all know that lots and lots of sitting is not the best thing for us. So I also try to open up the front side of the hips a bit, do some lunge stretches. That's a great way to do that. And I'll just scatter these throughout the experience. Even at the baggage claim, I'll do it if I'm not too smashed. Then the other part of movement is if you get to your destination, and you have time to go for a bike ride. I always recommend going for a ride. Some people have this question for me. Some of my athletes are confused about this. To me, it's a no-brainer. Get on your bike as quick as you can. Uh, get some food in you, especially if you fasted first. You want to eat, then ride. Um, those of you who have heard my failures in cycling episode will recall my story about how I passed out in Manchester a number of years ago because I didn't eat enough and then went and trained. I didn't eat on the plane and then I went and trained afterwards and that was a complete disaster. So take it for me on this one. You want to eat a little something first and then go for a bike ride if there's daylight and you've got time. This is a great way also to avoid napping. And I'm going to save that for the end because that's the most important point is the sleep schedule and the no napping rule. But there's a couple other bits. During the flight, I also recommend you dress somewhat warm and in layers so that you can take off a layer or two if you need to. Light layers is a good way to go. As you know, you probably know this, but airplanes tend to either run quite cold or sometimes broiling hot. But more often than not, I would say they're pretty cold. And so you want to be warm enough. You don't want to be freezing the whole time you're on the plane. That's a good way to mess things up a little bit. Challenge your body more than you want. Uh, travel is already a challenging enough experience. We don't need to be freezing for four or six or 10 hours. One specific item of clothing I recommend are compression socks. And I recommend that they are wool. Uh, Smartwool used to make some really good ones. I don't know who makes them now. I'm not sure if they still do. Mine are quite old. Maybe I need to buy some new ones. But I prefer some lightly compressive socks because it will help you have less edema in the experience of all the sitting. All your lymph and other fluids tend to descend into your ankles and you get the post-flight cankles big time. So when we use something that's compressive, that helps offset that a bit. Compression socks are usually made of nylon. Nylon is a very good conductor, so it's a poor insulator. So that means that you're going to be a bit cold. So that's why I recommend wool. Also, also natural fiber and natural fibers are good. Synthetic fibers are bad. Yes, I just disnified that comment. Uh, and also, I love wool. It's like one of the best fabrics on the planet. I'm wearing a bunch of wool right now because if you didn't hear me earlier, it's minus eight in Colorado and not in my house, but I'm still wearing a bunch of wool. So I recommend the wool socks. Okay. So one other bit I'll mention on the plane. I also recommend wearing some type of blue blocking eyewear or sunglasses. And this is because 
part of the overstimulation of flying, one aspect of it, in addition to all the noise and all the PA announcements and all the people talking and all the other engines roaring and things you hear, there's a lot of visual stimulus happening. Uh, Some flights have TVs and the backside of every seat, and sometimes they don't turn off or sometimes people don't turn them off. And then you've got all the cabin lights and all the, the cabin indicators and the signs and the no smoking signs and the seatbelt signs. And all these things are annihilating your eyeballs with full spectrum light and a lot of blue light. And I find this to be quite exhausting. I find that the visual stimulus of all these artificial lights really destroys me. So I figured out a number of years ago that if I wear blue blocking glasses, that it helps a lot. So I'm not talking about red lenses. I'm talking about yellow lenses. Yellow lenses won't actually normally put you to sleep, but they will help your eyes be a little less strained from all the all the full spectrum lights or the, the artificial lights that contain an unusually or disrupted spectrum of blue. And I think this is quite common on aircraft. In fact, some of the cabin lights now are blue, exclusively blue when they turn them down low, which is so contrary to what is correct for the human eyeball. I can't, I don't have words for this. It's right up there with the engineering of the United States, but this is a complete disaster for human eyeballs. So blue light is really bad for your eyes, uh, especially blue light isolated. I don't have any science to back this up. It's just something I figured out in my own experience here on earth. So if you are a light sensitive person, or if you think you might be try bringing some yellow lenses on the flight the ones I use are from Raw Optics. That's R-A Optics. I have no affiliation with them, but it's a good product. But there are plenty of other brands out there, and they fight a little bit about who's the best, but it's kind of like who has the best arrow wheel, uh, you know, which is sort of like whatever. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's an answer, but in 2023, they're all pretty close. So, or at least the big ones are. So find some good blue blocking glasses and try those. If you're a light sensitive person, you might really find that to be beneficial. Not incidentally, those are also really useful when you're driving at night. Uh, So many lights, the xenon headlights are so bright now, they just stab you in the face. So this is a good way to still see where you're going and be quite safe, but save your eyes quite a bit of strain. Okay, now on to the punchline, the no napping rule. So I think one of the most critical aspects to negotiating time zone adaptation successfully and setting yourself up for a good experience wherever you're going, whatever your event is, or maybe you're not going for a cycling event, you're just traveling to travel, uh, which I'm doing in a few days, actually. One of the biggest keys to that is the no napping rule. And the rule is no naps allowed for the first 72 hours when you're on the ground. And it's pretty simple. If you nap when you hit the ground, you're going to slip right back into the world's deepest sleep because you're exhausted from travel. You probably didn't sleep much on the plane and your body still doesn't know where it is. I mean, let's think about this for a second. You just flew halfway around the world at 600 miles an hour in a commercial jet. There's no universe where a human body was evolved to do that. None, right? I mean, we, we aren't even supposed to go 60 miles an hour and we do that pretty much every day in a car. So, actually 20 miles an hour. Like, unless you're Usain Bolt, none of us can even go 20 miles an hour. Like, when do we do that? So speed is not a thing. And when you go that fast over that many time zones to another continent, this just messes with your shit. It's not a natural phenomenon. So we have to accept that our bodies are going to be on the struggle bus. And it's just part of what we signed up for. So how do we negotiate this? Well, we have to endure a little short-term discomfort or maybe even pain to get adapted as quickly as possible. And in my experience, this is the best way to go. So when we allow ourselves to nap, we regress and we set ourselves or we keep ourselves in the previous time zone. It doesn't matter when the nap is or in the time zone you're in, current local time, or what it relates to in your previous time zone when you're smashed and you're sleep schedule is disrupted. When you nap, you make yourself further off target. So you have to be brutally strict with yourself for the first three days and allow no naps. And when you do this, your chances of sleeping through the night each night go up a lot in my experience. So here's what you got to avoid. 
I'm just using the typical fly to Europe example because that's easy to explain, but it'll apply to other concepts as well. You fly to Europe from the US and frequently you land at about nine in the morning. Depends on whether you have connecting flights or whatever, but anyway. So you're on the ground sometime in the first half of the day and then you're getting to your destination and usually you have time to unpack your bike, get some food and then go for a little ride. And then you go back to the hotel and it's still not dinner time and it's still light out. This is the danger zone to use Archer as a reference. You are firmly in the danger zone if you have already ridden and you go back to your hotel room and you've got time until dinner because you're going to be too tired to do anything constructive. So you're going to flip open your phone and spend about 20 minutes surfing Instagram. And then before you know it, you're going to be asleep on the bed. And then two hours later, you wake up and you don't know where you are. And people are telling you it's dinner time. This is really bad because then you're going to go to dinner and you're going to get tired again and go back to sleep. And then sure enough, at about 1.30 or 2 in the morning, you're going to be wide awake. And a big reason for this is because you didn't push through to proper bedtime. So I'm telling you, don't go back to the hotel room after lunch and you ride. You have to do something. Go sit outside in the sun. Go for a walk. Go put your feet in the park. Go to the shopping store and go to the shopping store. Go to the store and shop for food or whatever else you have to do. Go clean your bike. Go, I don't know what do something. You've got to find something to do that gets you out of that hotel room or out of your accommodations. That is the key to avoiding the danger zone map. Because if you sit in that bed for more than eight minutes, you're probably going to pass out. So you've been warned. The no napping rule is in full effect. If you make it till at least nine o'clock that night for dinner, uh, sorry, that night after dinner, then you're safe to go to bed. So anytime after nine is fair game, more ideal is probably 9.30 or 10 local time, and then you're out. To that point, you have to fiercely defend your sleep space. So that means if you're in a hotel room that's got a lot of gizmos and lights, you got to make yourself, you have to arm yourself with the proper, proper techniques and devices to help deflect these intrusions into your restfulness. What am I talking about? I'm talking about alarm clocks that have LED lights. I'm talking about smoke alarms. Um, frequently in Europe, they've got light switches that are glow in the dark or have little lights, LEDs next to them. These things will disrupt your sleep, especially if you sleep in a very dark home at, at where you live, at your home, uh, a very dark room in your home. So I carry a little Ninja Ops kit in my suitcase, which consists of basically black electrical tape. And I go around and I'll cut little pieces of electrical tape. And I'm sort of like a hotel terrorist, but in a good way, because I put tape over all the LEDs on the TV. I'll unplug everything I can unplug, but I do it in an obvious way. I'll take the unplugged plug and I will put it in a visible place so that when the maid comes back in, she sees that the TV's unplugged and then she'll plug it back in if I forget before I leave. Because I'm not trying to make someone else have a miserable experience where they can't figure out why the TV doesn't work. I'm not trying to, you know, tear apart the whole room. That's not the objective. I'm just trying to sleep well. But I will put tape over all the LED lights on the light switches and in the bathroom. And the last hotel that I stayed at in Spain had a glow-in-the-dark fire map on the backside of the door. And it was really bright. I mean, it pretty much illuminated the whole room. It was like having a almost a one quarter moon shining through the window all night. This is unacceptable. So I took a black t-shirt and I electrical taped it over the glow in the dark fire map. And I did remove that every day and hide it so that the cleaning lady wasn't super confused. These are the lengths I will go through to protect my sleep. Also, obviously you turn off your phone or if you have to set an alarm, then you put it in airplane mode. You don't need that thing beeping your notifications shouldn't be on anyway. If you're a person who has your notifications on, I'll argue that you're living your life wrong. And that's super judgy. If you want to write me a comment about it, we can discuss. But that's my suggestion as far as hotels go. Um, hang your do not disturb out on your door so that the maid doesn't come wake you up. And also set an alarm because every once in a while you sleep really, really, really late when you recovering from jet lag. And that can also be a bit stressful to the system, especially if you miss breakfast or whatever you've got going on in the morning. But that's, that's what I got. 
uh, no napping rule, defend your sleep space, pass out. The last bit on sleep I'll mention is sleep aids. I said I was going to talk about sleeping on the plane. I do use binaural beats. I even have a few weird hippie things I use that are basically sleep hypnosis tracks. And those can be unbelievably effective when I'm on the plane. They just make me feel like I've got six hours of sleep in about 30 minutes. Um, if anyone wants that resource, you got to send me an email and I will send it to you. But when you hit the ground, uh, first thing I'll say is I do not recommend any prescription sleep aids or over-the-counter sleep aids that are medical in nature. Uh, that is to say, non-herbal or uh, there's some sleep stacks that I'll use, but I wouldn't use them on the plane, right? I would just use um, auditory cues like binaural beats or the other things I described. That that stuff can be quite effective, but I'm not taking any sleep drugs on the plane. That's not how I roll. And I don't take it when I land either. I have used melatonin from time to time, and I think that it can be effective in small doses when you travel for the right moment. Um, it's good to get a time-release melatonin because sometimes you take it and then it sort of burns through your system pretty quickly and then you're up at three in the morning. So you don't you want to avoid that situation. There is some science that has come out recently on melatonin that suggests that it might not be the best thing in the presence of cancer cells. So I think it's something that we want to avoid long-term for sure. Melatonin is a natural hormone that your body creates. It's what you feel when you're really sleepy and tired. So when you supplement as is the case with most hormones, when you supplement a hormone with an exogenous form of a hormone, that is you supplement your naturally produced endogenous hormone, hormonal system with an exogenous source of those hormones, typically what happens is your body stops manufacturing the endogenous form. That is, if you take a bunch of melatonin, your body stops making melatonin because those receptors are already full and they detect that you've got enough melatonin in your system. Your body's always looking for homeostasis, balance. So when you have enough melatonin in the system, it'll stop making it. This is, this is how many of this, the systems of the body work, right? The body is a cybernetic organism. It's a system of systems. And it's always trying to keep things in check and not let things get too out of whack. So if you take a bunch of melatonin all the time because you think it's the best thing ever to get to sleep, eventually there will be consequences. So this is not what we're recommending. However, I do think small amounts of melatonin can be useful when you're adapting to a new time zone. I also think that a little more coffee than usual can be useful when you're adapting to the new time zone. And I forgot to mention that earlier, one of the best things to do to avoid the danger zone, that is when you've gone for your ride and had your lunch and you're back in the hotel room is to go for a coffee. And in Europe, that works out really well because their coffees frequently are single shots. So you're not going to nuke yourself. But when you're in, we'll say the first probably 48 hours of travel, your system is working kind of overdrive because you've gone from one continent to the other. I think, I don't have any science to support this, but my feeling is that my ability to process caffeine is increased. That is, if I had a double espresso at 5 or 6 p.m. in Colorado, I would fully expect to not sleep well for several hours. That would keep me awake for a long time. And I'm pretty caffeine sensitive. That's partially because I limit my caffeine take. I don't go nuts with it. But if I have an espresso at 5 or 6 p.m. in Europe, the day that I've flown in from travel, I will be able to fall asleep by 9 or 10, no problem. And that is partially due to the context of the fact that I probably didn't sleep on the plane, probably didn't get too much sleep the night before, and I don't nap. But I know from experience that I can pull this off. So I'm just suggesting that you might use coffee at the right moment to help you stay on track. And I would say the same rule applies for the second and third day when you're on the ground in the afternoon or maybe after your ride or whatever you're doing. If you start to feel a little sleepy or a little sluggish, enjoy a coffee. Um, you know, 
coffee is one of life's little happy gifts. So when you get to have an extra one and it benefits your end goal of adaptation to your local time zone, then that's a little moment for joy. I think that's everything I've got on my jet lag time zone adaptation philosophies and techniques. If you have any questions about this topic, hit me back. I hope this podcast was helpful. Maybe a bit rambly. Soul pods are not easy. I feel like I'm getting better at them, but they're still a thing that is challenging. Um, overall, I'm glad to be back in Colorado after this last trip. Team EF Coaching Camp was a huge success. You can probably check out a bunch of our socials on the camp. We're going to have some photos and some podcasts. We're also doing a Team EF Coaching podcast. We got a couple good interviews done while we're there. Zach was working hard to get those done. He had an interview with uh, the team nutritionist, Will Gerling, and that went really well. Will also taught a session at our camp, so that was quite interesting. And we had a good good bunch of rides over there. The weather turned out quite good after a pretty dismal forecast. So we have to be grateful for that. That's what I got for time zone adaptation. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for supporting my sponsors and supporters. If you haven't tricked out your whip with some sick enduro bearings, you know what to do. Head over to the enduro bearings website and use the magic code, which is listed in the commercial. Thanks everyone. Happy holidays. I'm recording this just before Christmas and New Year's in 2022. I hope your year wraps up well and you enjoy some holiday time with your family in whatever form that may be. And as always, pedal fast, pedal smoothly, and most importantly, pedal consciously. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse because if we can't have a discourse as adults then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society even if we disagree we ought to be able to in most cases shake hands and walk away because after all this is sport we're talking about and while sport is training for life it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.